Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. My name's Andrew Popel, and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney, and 2SER broadcast from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and the Gundungurra people, so I want to start by acknowledging the traditional owners and pay my respects to their ongoing connections to their lands, stolen lands that were never ceded. Now, on Final Draft this week, we featured a new anthology called After Australia. It's taking us to Australia in 2050, and the collection features an incredible selection of Indigenous writers and writers of colour telling stories that explore our society and where we're going. So this week we're doing things a little bit differently, and I've got a selection of great conversations from the collection for you to enjoy. So all this week we will be sharing, and today I'd like to introduce Khalid Wasami. Khalid is a Melbourne-based writer, editor, and arts producer. He's a former fixture editor at The Lifted Brow, and he's a co- and is former co-director of the National Young Writers Festival. He's also writing his first novel. Khalid's story in the anthology is List of Known Remedies. It's a seemingly innocuous tale of friendship, relationships, and a sick dog that hides a startlingly sinister future. So join me as we discover Khalid Wasami's List of Known Remedies. I am joined on the line by Khalid Wasami, and he is one of the contributors to the After Australia anthology. His short story is List of Known Remedies, and it is a a seemingly sweet, innocuous tale of of friends and life in Melbourne. And Khalid, I, I fell in love with your story at first because it showed me I guess something of that normal life that we're missing at the moment. But then I've also decided on rereading it this morning that your story is also one of the most frighteningly uh, bleak future visions that I've read in a while. Um, I want to get I want to get into that, but can you tell me a little bit about about world building? Like, how do you do world building like this? Oh, I, it comes from a lot of little places, like. Um, I always get confused when people ask me how I come up with stories because I actually write um, over a long period. I'm a really slow writer. So this story in particular came um, came together over a course of about, over about a year. And there's a lot of little things in there that really are just things that I picked up over the course of writing this story. Um, so the main conceit is that the... Um, the Australian government has, has embarked on an absurd project to build a wall around Australia. And I remember that. I remember actually, I remember having that idea and it was just a really dumb idea. And I was working on this story at the time and I was like, um, a while ago I decided to write a story that was about people who actually like each other as opposed to, um, I was reading a lot of stories at the time, particularly stories of friendships where the main plot seems to be driven by people being mean to each other. Um, and I know that's a really simple way to classify stories, but I, I was interested in exploring friendship as a, as a plot device. And I was also interested in writing a story where the conflict wasn't coming from people being terrible to each other. So that was the initial idea for the story. And that's why it's that, um, two best friends, um, um, hanging out and doing stuff. But in the background, there's all this big stuff going on. Um, of course, this story, I don't know if it's obvious from reading it, but it was written during the bushfire, bushfires mm. that was happening about a year or so, uh, earlier this year, actually. Wow, it's so recent. <laughs> <laughs> yes, 2020 um, has been going for the last decade. <laughs> right? 
Um, so there was this scene where the uh, Prime Minister was forcing some um, a, a person, someone whose house was destroyed by a bushfire, he was forcing them to shake his hands for a photo opportunity. And I thought that was just so abject. It was just such a grotesque um, way to move through the world, especially as a leader of a, of a country of 21 million people. And um, uh, something about the whole image really stuck out to me. And of course, there was that idea of um, the wall around the, in the seawall, um, which was funny at first, and then it just became more and more serious as the world became more serious around the time I was writing the story. So it, was, it turned from a, yeah. There was a moment where the penny dropped for me and my first reaction was, stop it, you'll give them ideas. Um, and then, I mean, your, your unnamed narrator is about to have a book of poetry published and Mm. we see as they move around the story, writing down snippets and words and and images. And it, it felt to me that was exactly how you've, you've created this larger world, um, dropping seemingly innocuous moments in, like a reference to an episode of Q&A or mm. an, an off-the-cuff comment about uh, Sydney that um, I don't even want to ask what's happened to Sydney, um, that, that made this tension in the background and you see the characters stop and the mm. enormity of things just washes over them. Yeah, I'm so glad you noticed that. Just like I feel like running underneath the story at the same time is this meta commentary on the process of writing, where the story actually really does look like the way it came together. Um, and the main character has um, the main character in the story is a poet, which I, I don't write poetry, but I I write the same way that he does in terms of keeping a notebook and writing bits and pieces down and um, sort of litigating his world in real time and trying to figure out what bubbles to the surface and trying to pick out meaning from that. Um, and I, yeah, I'm really glad you noticed that because that was a very deliberate thing. I wanted to, I wanted the way the person moves, the way the main character moves through the world and the way they practice their art to reflect something of the process of a story coming together a little bit. It's a, it's a, it's, all right, I feel like it's a, it's a little bit obscure talking about um, that as a writer because I, I feel like it's not necessary to enjoy the story for someone to know that there are, you know, specific thematic things that I am very, very um, um, invested in, such as that thing that you just mentioned. For better or worse, though, you are stuck with me, so we are going to go a little bit with the, the, the oh, no, no, I, I, love talk, <laughs> I love talking about this. Very few. It's so rare that I actually get to talk about my work, which is weird. The, so I'm actually really enjoying it. The meta narrative of List of Known Remedy is, is staggering. And, and to that, I would like to actually talk about Meteor the dog because at the beginning of the story, the story actually begins with Meteor in a bit of a crisis. Uh, Meteor swallowed mm. a beer bottle cap and, and is not doing so great. So your narrator is coming to drive his friend Sam and Meteor to the vet we learn at the vet that Meteor's actually swallowed three bottle caps and things are not looking good. And there's nothing to yeah. do but wait. And, and then this waiting, this sense of overwhelming helplessness and needing comfort, needing to know, <laughs> needing reassurance. It felt like that larger response, the way we, the way we respond and the way we adapt to crisis. 
because mm. the world just keeps on going, doesn't it? Like mm. we were so we're so into the idea of significant moments being significant in the moment, but we know like the whole world has gone through a crisis over the past few months, and if it's taught us anything, it's taught us that like crisis is like immensely tedious and boring. There's a lot of waiting going on. There's um, like right like right now, I'm waiting for the results of a of a coronavirus test and. At this moment, I might have it, I might not have it. So it's, it's, and I've, in the meantime, I'm just going about my day, you know, doing a radio interview. Um, I'm t- I guess I'll start on my taxes later. And like, it's, it's so strange how, like, um, I feel like in, in many ways, this story sort of like, um, was my process of figuring out how to exist in the everyday of a crisis during the crisis that was happening while I was writing the story, which, seems so quaint now the idea of the continent being on fire which was this huge thing for us months ago and now um it's just one in a series of crises that you know we have to place into we have to live through and we have to figure out a way to you know wait around for things to happen <laughs> i don't want to yeah uh, i don't want to give away meteor's fate to, to readers or potential readers of the story. But what really struck me is that when I learned Meteor's fate, I, I wondered to myself, should I be should I be reading this in the in the large or in the small? Because it, it it is very much what you show us in the story is that despite this sort of creeping authoritarianism and a world that is wholly changed from our world right now, there's also just this getting on with things like life will continue to happen yeah yeah um in that sense i i sort of in the original version of the story um Meteor's fate was a lot different um and the ending was a lot different and it just it felt it bummed me out because you know the main character is not a huge fan of the dog but I am. <laughs> so it's almost, uh, I, I sort of felt, yeah, I, I, I felt, I felt sort of like the ending had to make sense in the small, um, and the larger implications of the way the story comes together at the end, at the end. Um, originally I was thinking a lot about that when I was finishing the story, but then I realized that this is a story that really exists in the small scale and the larger stuff isn't really supposed to isn't really the engine of the meaning of the story i feel Mm. um so yeah i guess to that answer there is a distinct answer which is like from my perspective i think it makes things in the smaller in the small as opposed to in the large Mm. there is an image in the story as well and and we've we've talked about the the broader world that your that list of known remedies exists in but uh, more accurately i would probably call it an incomplete image because your narrator and um and Sam go down to the docks and you tell us, we found a nice spot that gave us a good view of the construction site. Of course, you couldn't see the whole structure. It was just too large to fit into a human's perspective. And we learn that what they're looking at is a, a part of the seawall being constructed. But it also felt like you were describing kind of the edifice of authoritarian rule that that can control our lives, that gets built through pieces of legislation and police powers mm. and things like that. That's a, that's a really interesting perspective and I'm absolutely on board with that um, interpretation because what it really is is that I have a view 
that park that they sit in, I have a view of that park from my house. So I, I actually know exactly where this story is set, and it's set um, um, a little bit somewhere in between Yarraville and Footscray, and there's the Maribyrnong River, and there's like sort of um, the dock sort of rises up in, in your view, so it's not a flat view. You, there's a river, and then there's this verticality of the dock, and then above that is the skyline of the city. And um, yeah, I, I hang out there all the time, and um, one of the strangest, ideas that that inspired this story was just imagining instead of um, shipping containers that there would be giant stone blocks being moved around and originally the idea was a lot more quaint there was like you know I think there is portcullis in this story <laughs> there's an actual gate but the original the original version of the seawall was a fully medieval affair with uh with stonemasons scrambling across and like um um offshore platforms and things Oh, yeah, I, 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 I really, I really, I, I'm really taken with that because I, I think a lot of the time, you know, as a writer, I, I am thinking, of course, about the larger themes and the meanings of the story and what I'm, what I'm doing with my words. But at the same time, I sort of trust that that sort of stuff will come out and I can sort of focus on a story and, um, and, and like, what, what you said about like the the the, 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 the story does have a lot to say about the nature of authority and government and what power does and the meaning of um, someone's ability to change someone else's world in in many ways and I I I fully am on board with that I just really I feel like I'm almost too dumb as a writer to have all that going on in my head while I'm writing the story and later on it just starts to make sense to me and I start to see all these like um, echoes of meaning that are, are just you know or thematic through lines through the piece and that's definitely one of them well I want to then if I can um, just take an even deeper dive on possibly incorrect readings of list of known remedies mm-hmm. I mean it's it's co- I don't think I don't think there isn't any incorrect meetings readings of work it's too new like it, it's just come out um, um, and I haven't really talked about the story that much so i feel like we're in this exciting spot where well it's from the perspective of a writer where i feel like the story could be anything at this point because i feel like i'm done with it and other people are now doing the work of um make making meaning with it as soon as you said that there are no wrong readings my brain went to that mm-hmm. that meme where it's just like there are no wrong, <laughs> wrong meanings hold my beer <laughs> I I think I think this is a completely spurious and obviously incorrect reading of list of known remedies because for me I also saw that in our locked down times what you were in in the context of after Australia you were actually revealing a future of socialising and being with friends in public spaces which of course we can't really do um, even mm. even here in Sydney. Um, has it surprised you though the way that the the pandemic and lockdown has forced us? to reimagine and respond to art? Are you finding yourself responding to art and, and that sort of thing in a different way in lockdown? Oh, oh yeah. At first, I had no patience for any um, art that, speak, that was seeking to respond to this moment that, we're, that we are in. And I don't know where that, uh, where that came from. I remember, I remember one towards the beginning of this um, pandemic. I was in Greece, actually, in the beginning of this year, and I had to fly back um, because of the border closures and you know coronavirus, wow. but um, at the time, I remember I remember having this very vivid image in my head of 
three or four years from now of a musical on Broadway um, called Pandemic with a big question mark at the end. It was with a big exclamation mark at the end. And I just had this fully realized daydream of this musical. And it, it filled me with such visceral disgust and for what it was. And I was so annoyed by this thing that I invented for myself of an artistic response to a, of an imagined artistic response to a coronavirus, to um, COVID-19. And I remember thinking about that, trying to figure out why I was so disturbed by that idea. Um, and then over the next few weeks or months, just I just realized that I really, really didn't have the capacity within me to imagine or to, to have space for anything other than terror or fear. And I felt um, a few months on, I, I realize now how misguided that is because the, I feel like the antidote to my terror and fear at the time would have been in art and poetry and people responding with love and care and compassion and, and also tremendous, you know, um, rigor and foresight and, and artistic integrity. And, um, and I, I realize now that I have, I have, I think I'm afraid of bad takes on COVID-19. I think I'm afraid of bad art responding to this crisis and any crisis because I feel like bad art will lean more towards an uncritical and uninteresting reading as opposed to what I think is capable and possible of being made. So I don't know if I'm making sense there, but I've come around to I've come around to um, art and the age of COVID nineteen, and now I'm I'm super stoked about it. I, I read a poem by Evelyn Araluen the other day, and she um, wrote she she called it a coronavirus poem. And at first I was like, oh no, my favorite one of my favorite poets is writing a poem that I might not like. But then I um, um, she read it, and I was watching the thing online, and it was beautiful. <laughs> it was great. I loved it. So yeah, I uh, I don't know. It's it's hard. I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to be an artist responding to this crisis, which I obviously like, am put in a position of being because I'm responding to my everyday life and my work. But I, I, I think there's space for it. And I think I'm ready for it. And I think I have the capacity to, um, you know, become open to that sort of thing. And it's really interesting the way. Um the collection, the anthology after Australia has in, in its own way from a time before the pandemic offered some responses. I think the artistic response is something that, mm. that is inevitably going to become so important. Um, and I'm sorry, Khalid, I can't get it out of my head now that you've mentioned pandemic, the musical, I've got some sort of, <laughs> I've got some sort of Quentin Tarantino does Labo right? thing it's, going it's on. It's compelling. It's compelling. Everyone that I've told, that too has immediately had an image of what it would be like and it's always horrifying yeah yeah <laughs> oh wow oh wow well look i i've just list of known remedies has been such an incredible uh a part of this anthology and just look i'm speaking with khalid wasami and we are discussing list of known remedies it is a part of the after australia anthology khalid thank you so much for uh, for taking oh, the time to talk through it today. Thank you so much. I'm so glad you had. Um, um, I'm so glad you liked the story, and I'm really, I was really interested to see what you had to say. And thank you so much for having me. 
That's it for this great conversation with Khalid Wasami. The After Australia collection is out now through a firm press. Great Conversations is recorded on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation at two SER's Broadway studios in Sydney, Australia, and the show is presented and produced by Andrew Popel. The final draft Great Conversations podcast, it will, it's all about books, writing, and literary culture. So could you help me help others discover great new Australian stories? If you give us a rating, leave a comment, even just listening in, wherever you get this prod... Uh, <laughs> Wherever you get this podcast, your ratings, uh, they help put Final Draft in front of more eyes in the podcast world. It lets people know that we're out there. My name is Andrew Popel, and I'll be back next week with more great conversations from Final Draft. Happy reading.